it's considered a sale. made a special ordinance so that a fisherman could, could live today and have something to eat before he goes fishing. So these are desperate situations where exceptions were made. Zion, the son who sold his inheritance while his father's still alive. There's a son who knows his father is dying very soon. So he sold the inheritance. And God has a funny sense of humor. The son died, and the father's still living. So what did the son sell? Nothing. Because he never inherited. Dead people don't inherit. And then the father dies. Who do you think gets the whole estate? The son of the son, the grandson. You know what the grandson could do? He can go to the buyers who bought the field or whatever they bought for the inheritance from his father, and he could just take it away because his father never owned it to sell it. Because his father sold something he never had. You can't sell something you don't own. Who had the estate? The person who died, the grandfather. The grandson is the heir. The father, he never inherited anything because he died. was anything similar. Now, this seems to be a pretty unfair deal. But, uh, as I get this. And there are many conditions which I'm not going to go into. Okay. Somebody gives a piece of land as a gift to another. And on top of the land, he says, and I'm giving you 100 dinars. A lot of money. Now, we learned before, much earlier, that one of the modes of a kinyan, of acquisition, is kinyan agav. That anything could be acquired in addition to land, on top of land. And we also learned that the object does not have to be literally on the land. The object could actually be in Portugal. And the land could be in Kentucky. As long as the dinars existed in the domain of the person who is transferring them, when the one who acquires, acquires the field, he also acquires the dinars wherever they are. That is, if they exist in the domain of the one who transfers them. What if he simply doesn't have any dinars? We don't obligate the giver to give him 100 dinars, because it never existed. Until the one who made this acquisition brings proof that the guy did have dinars. The same applies for any other movable object. That a person conveys along with land. If they're now not in the domain possession of the seller or donor, then the buyer or recipient does not acquire them. Again, a person cannot convey something that does not belong to him. However, if somebody has an entrusted object which he gave to somebody, which means if I gave Daniel here something to hold for me, that's mine. He's holding it for me, but it's mine. This I can convey, whether in a sale or in a gift. Because when I have an entrusted object in the hands of a shomer of a bailey, it's my object, and it exists. I have to assume that it's there. Why? Because someone who's a shomer, someone who's asked to guard my object, may not use my object. God forbid. If I ask somebody to watch and guard my object, he can't make use of it. In What if the bailey denies it, and he says, I don't know what you're talking about, and then the acquisition doesn't work. It's like something was lost. If it's lost, here we find a beautiful, fine halachic difference. What about it was not an object that he asked somebody to guard or watch for him? A bailey. It's alone. Alone. I lent someone money. Then I say, along with the field, I'm conveying the money of this loan. A loan doesn't have to exist. Because when people borrow money, they borrow it to spend it. I don't have to hold your loan as an object that I can't touch. On the contrary, I borrowed the loan to use it. So, when we're talking about a loan, being that the loan does not exist, technically, in general terms, it doesn't exist in the world. I can't convey something that doesn't exist. Where's the money? I don't know. Spent. There's only one way we learned, and we will learn, that somebody can convey a loan, and that is if three, all three people, the borrower, the lender, and the new acquisition guy are all standing together, you can say, I transfer this obligation to you. Other than that, it doesn't work. Why is it that way? Says the Rambam. There's no reason to mention the as we already explained in chapter 6, Allah 8. But if it was a documented loan with a note, a promissory note, you can convey the note, which is written and conveyed, because something can actually physically be conveyed, which could represent the obligation. You attend to shame, just as a person cannot convey something that never existed in this world. So also a person cannot convey something to a person that doesn't exist. You can't convey something to your future son. The one your wife's going to have. Even if the person's wife is pregnant and the fetus is within her, it still doesn't exist because it wasn't born yet. If somebody acquires on behalf of a fetus, he doesn't acquire because a fetus is not a living entity. However, the exception is if it was his son, not just some fetus. It's his wife and his son and she is about to give birth. Because a person is so 
He feels so close to his son. Kona, there's an exception made, and his unborn son can actually acquire the billion dollars he wants to give them. You know, the what if a man says to his wife, I am conveying all my properties to the children you will have. The children that she will have inherit nothing. Being that she wasn't even carrying them at the time of the gift. Then this is not considered having come into the world where you can actually rely on it. What if somebody has a pet? He loves his pet. And he transfers the ownership of his estate to his animal. I'm going to give everything I have to my pet chihuahua. His name is Albert. You know what he conveyed to his pet chihuahua? You can't convey to an animal. What if he conveyed a percentage of his estate to an animal? Or a percentage of his estate to a non-existent entity. Like the children his wife is going to have one day. And then he said to his living friend, You acquire just like this animal did. I gave the animal 20%, I'm giving you 20%. I gave my unborn children 20%, I'm giving you 20%. The guy acquires nothing. Because the animal acquires nothing. And the unborn children acquire nothing. He also acquires nothing. Because the reproduction of nothing is nothing. He said it differently. You acquire and my petuawa will acquire. You and my unborn child. The guy inherits half. The animal or the unborn inherits nothing, but the living person does. A person cannot convey, whether by sale or gift, something that has no substance. You can't convey or acquire something without substance. What's something without substance? Kesan, for example. A person bites into an apple. He says, oh, this apple, the fragrance, the smell is so good. I'm conveying this to you. What are you conveying? The smell? How do you convey a smell? I guess you can buy these days apple deodorizer. But that's not what we're talking about. You can't convey a smell of an apple. He says, this honey, I've never taken, I'm conveying the taste of the honey to you. The color of this crystal is gorgeous. I'm conveying the color. If there's anything similar, you can't convey just non-substance. If somebody conveys to another, the eating pleasure of the fruits of this palm tree, or the dwelling privilege of this house, like Connor, he doesn't acquire because it's too abstract. Actually, he has to say, I am conveying to you the house that you could live in it. I'm conveying the tree, but only to the extent that you can eat its fruits. You can't just Convey an abstract idea. Now, Dina Hegdish, what about the law applying to transactions involving property consecrated to the Holy Temple? Or items belonging to the poor, or vows? The laws are different than the laws for everyday people. Because if a person said, anything my animal will give birth to, the Hegdish will be holy, the better for the upkeep fund of the temple, a year also, a liar will be prohibited to me, a none of the stalker, I'll give everything that this animal will give birth to charity, even though it doesn't retain sanctity because it's not yet here, he has to fulfill his words, as it says, a very broad statement with regard to vows and holy objects, a person should always do everything he said he will. So if he makes a pledge to charity or if he makes a commitment to the holy temple or what have you, he has to keep his word, which is why, and the Rebbe was very meticulous about this, when we make pledges to charity, we should always say, without a vow. Being that this is so, a person was breathing his last breath and he said, Everything this tree will produce will go to the poor. All the rent this house will produce goes to the poor. You know what? The poor acquired. The closing paragraph of chapter 22. There are scholars who debate and dispute this and say, That the poor can only acquire that which everyday people acquire. They should not acquire something unborn and they therefore disagree with this, anything that did not yet come into existence. That's what some say. I don't agree with what they're saying. A person is not commanded to convey something. So everyday life, the conveyance of futuristic things do not work. The who, but this person, the is commanded, as we said earlier. You must observe the words of your lips. The lips. kind of he has to fulfill his words, but tzedakah, in matters of charity. Just as we explained in great, great, great detail much earlier, just as he's obligated to pay his vows. As we explained in great detail in the laws of Arachin, chapter 6, paragraph 31 through 33, end of chapter 22. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchis, the laws of Mechira, selling, business. Today's chapter is going to define a particular situation. The situation is something we touched upon in the last chapter. And that is, we cannot sell something that does not yet exist. I cannot sell something to you that will happen. I'm going to sell you my lottery winnings as soon as I win it. You can't do that. Because you don't have any lottery winnings. And that's what we learned in the earlier chapter. Now the Rambam is going to give us a way out. <clears throat> so, listen closely, and this is interesting. Aleph, makne odom, haguf 
A person can transfer the body of, for example, the tree in order for the recipient to have the fruits. In other words, instead of saying to someone, you can have or purchase all the fruits, my tree will grow, that's not good. That's future, because your tree hasn't grown any fruits. And who knows if it will? He says to him, I am conveying and transferring my tree to you for the purpose only of its fruits. So now you get the tree for the purpose of its fruits. That's something that exists, even though you're really only getting the fruits. Whether it's a sale, or a gift, or the dying words of a person who is about to pass on. This is called a shiv In his last moments, he says, listen, give this to this one. Our sages were more lenient with that. This does not face the problem of how do you convey something that doesn't exist because it does exist. You're conveying the tree for the purpose of its fruits. The body of the tree, the body of the plant, the body of the field exists. And the conveyance is only for its fruits. You know what this would be similar to? And here we go into real estate. It's important for all the real estate experts to listen. To someone who rents a house. Someone who leases a field. To someone else. Where he doesn't convey the body of the house. He's not selling the house. He's renting or leasing it. He's not selling the field. He's renting or leasing it. What does that mean, renting or leasing a house or a field? It means you can live there and you can grow fruits there, but you can't have it. You can benefit of the body of the entity, of what it produces. So you get the body for what it produces. And here he spells it out in two cases, for example. Or as I used to say back in Newark when I was a kid, I'll give you a for instance. Today, for example, somebody gave, gifted, or sold a field only for the purpose of benefiting from its produce. Now, this could be done for a very limited time. It could be for a season, or for two seasons, or for a month, or for a year. Or it could be done for a very long time. For example, it could be pegged to the lifespan of the seller. It could be pegged to the lifespan of the buyer. And the same law applies. Not only a field for its produce, but a tree for its roots. Hey, another example is Rochel Ligizosa, a sheep for its wool. I'm conveying my sheep to you. You can have one season, two seasons of its wool, the rest of its life, the rest of your life, the rest of my life. Or I'm conveying my animal to you. When it gives birth, you can keep the offspring. The same goes for a maid servant. You can keep his accomplishments, that which he does, has a value. It could belong to you. In all of the above scenarios, the sale is valid. The gift is valid because you gifted the object, but only in connection to what it accomplishes or what it produces or what have you. Now, we learned earlier that there's a rule, a law in the Torah, that if an ox goes crazy and gores a slave, and then witnesses come and say, your ox gored this and this person's slave and killed him, the owner of the ox has to pay a large fine, 30 silver shekels to the owner of the slave. This is a very special law. Now, I guess what if somebody is uh, in, in the futures and he's betting? Mohar Abdel Knas, he sells his slave in case an ox happens to gore him. You can keep the 30 silver shekels. It's like buying a lottery ticket. You have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than winning the lottery. Shem Yukah, Shem Yugach, if this servant will be gored and he will die. You know, Jackie Mason has a beautiful line. He says, I have a great insurance policy. He says, you know, I can get a million dollars if I will be bitten by a giraffe. There's only one provision. The giraffe has to be pregnant at the time, and so do I. So he's selling his slave that might be gored and killed by an ox. Yeah, the buyer gets to keep the penalty. Actually, this situation, this scenario, is discussed in detail in the Talmud. And they did not come to a certain conclusion. The Rambam established earlier that his opinion is whenever there's a debate in the Talmud that has no certain conclusion, the person cannot collect, but if he grabs it, he also can't take it away from him. The Fika, therefore, like Kone, doesn't acquire that ultimate penalty. Why? Because the servant may never be gored. The servant can live 120 years and never be gored by an ox. And if it is, if the owner of the ox comes and confesses before the witnesses come and testify, penalties and confessions don't go together. Penalties are never applicable through confession. They're only applicable through testimony. If But if the purchaser, if the buyer, grabbed the value of the penalty money from the owner of the ox, and they see the other, we don't force it away from him. Now is an interesting situation in four, in Dalit. Mohar Elon Lazer, this guy wanted to make a few dollars. He sold a tree to Mr. A, who paid Aisab Akhar and the fruits of the tree to Mr. B. So is it a good sale? The answer is no. When you sell the tree to Mr. A, he's buying fruits too. So you have no fruits left to sell. The Ain Akhar Kum and the second guy gets nada. It's like buying the Brooklyn Bridge. Unless your name is Brooklyn, it's not going to help you. However, if he sold 
Elon, Elon is a name. I know some people named Elon. Elon means a tree. If he sold a tree, he says, I'm selling you my tree, but I want you to know you can have the tree because I know you like trees, but the fruits are mine. It's like the old commercial. It's Joe Albertson's supermarket, but the fruit department is mine. He left the fruits for himself. When it comes to leaving stuff for oneself, that counts. Why? She doesn't even have to specify it. In other words, if you're a good buyer, you better specify that you're buying the fruits too. buying up from When it comes to a person leaving stuff for himself, he's very generous. Hey, now the Rambam is going to talk about. We have a word for what the Rambam is about to talk about. The word we have is called a lease. You know, a lease could be for a year. It could be for two years. The lease could be for 99 years, for 50 years. If somebody sells the body of a particular real estate for a limited term, I'm selling you my field, I'm selling you my house for 10 years, for 99 years. Well, again, in English, that's a lease. The sale is a sale. And the buyer can use the body of the object as he wishes. And he can eat of the produce. He can benefit from whatever that item offers. For as long as the sale is in place or for as long as the lease is in place. But at the end, it will automatically revert back to its original owners. Like uncommon. So what difference is there in that case between someone who sells land for a limited amount of time or someone who sells a field for its produce? It sounds sort of the same. What's the difference if I purchase a field for its produce or a tree for its fruit or I lease this field? The answer is there's a big difference. Because when somebody purchases produce, he can't go in and redesign the field. He can't say, oh, I'm moving this here, I'm moving this here, I got a whole plan, I'm calling in my people. No. All you can do is pick the fruit, is harvest the grain when it's done. He can't construct, he can't destruct, destroy. No construction, no destruction. However, when somebody buys for a certain amount of years, let's talk English. When somebody leases, he can build, he can destroy. I'm very familiar with the situation where there's a piece of property that was leased for a long time, and the question is, can you build a building? And will the bank give you a loan? When it's not your land, we get a loan to build our land lease. Well, it's not so simple. It's possible, but it's not so simple. So the fact is, you can build, you can demo. Just as a purchaser who purchases something forever can make change, can affect change. Whereas someone who purchases a tree for its produce, all he can do is take the produce. Next question says the What is the difference? Yes, between one who, as above, sells a field for its produce, or he sells the fruit to someone which we said earlier is a problem because the fruit doesn't exist. Because if somebody sells the fruit of the field, even if we can find a way for it to take hold, the buyer can't ever use the field in any way, shape, or form because all he bought is a finished product. A field, he can't even go in. When the fruit will ripen, if the acquisition was good, he can go pick up his fruit. The intern, the owner of the field, can do anything he wants in the field because all he sold was the produce. But when somebody sells a field for its produce, he sells the field for its produce. The owner cannot enter because when you rent a property to someone and you trespass, you're trespassing. You have to go in with permission. Only with the knowledge of the buyer. And the buyer can do whatever he wants. And here the Rambam asks one more question. What is the difference? This is like the Manishana. The Rambam has three questions. What is the difference between someone who purchases this field for its roots? Or someone who rents a field from someone? Is it different? Renting a field from someone seems to be the same thing. Because when somebody acquires a field for its produce, he can plant trees there if he wants. Or he can plant vegetables there, grain. As long as he wants, he can do whatever he wants. Or he can do nothing. And just let it lie fallow. But when somebody rents, it's not so, as the Rambam will explain in a whole section, that has to do with renting. And of course, a lot of this depends upon what the common custom is. But renting is much more limited than buying an object for its produce. Furthermore, you can't sublease. A renter cannot rent to someone else. Try and rent a car from Hertz. And then go rent your Hertz car to someone else. You'll get arrested if they'll catch you. What do you mean? I rented the car. I can do what I want. No, you can't. Read the fine print. But somebody purchases even the right of produce, he can convey to anyone, anytime, anything he wants to, as long as that's what he purchases. So if I purchase your produce from your field, I can resell it and resell it, and I can do whatever I want to. And that's the whole story. When you lease a property, can you sublease it? Can you transfer the lease? Is it transferable? These are very real questions today. Test nine. Okay, now we segue into a whole different world. 
a world that I can safely tell you I know nothing about. Because we're talking about dovecoats, and we're talking about beehives. When I see a beehive, I run. If somebody sells the produce of a dovecoat, which means where pigeons hang out and breed. And the produce of a beehive to someone else. And apparently, I understand that bees are a big business. Because bees produce honey, and people like honey. And the same goes for doves, pigeons. So if somebody sells whatever the dovecote will produce, which means the doves, the doves that will be born in this dovecote, or the produce which will be produced in this beehive, corner he acquires, it's a sale. This does not run into the problem of selling something that hasn't come into being yet, because the doves that are going to be born are still not in this world. The, the honey that's going to be made is not existing yet. Because how do we get around this issue? He's not selling the little pigeons that will, the little doves that will be born. He's not selling the honey that will be produced. What he's selling is Shebach, the dovecote, he's selling the place, the object, for the purpose of its produce. No different than selling a field for its produce. Or he's selling the beehive for its honey. Why? Who you know this is similar to Sister Rambam. This would be tantamount, similar to. Like somebody would lease a stream of water to someone else. I'll rent you. I'll let you use my stream of water. What happens when I rent or lease your stream of water? Well, I get to use everything in the stream. I can go fishing in the stream. You can go hunting in the stream. Whatever he comes up with is his. That's why I leased it. This seller, this fellow conveyed the produce of this dog coat for the purposes of whatever will be produced. No different than the man who sold the tree for produce. The din kulam and the law applicable to all of the above. Kidin would be no different than hasecher by than someone who rents a house from another fellow. What can he do in the house? Live there and anything else he wants to. Kameshomarno. In other words, what does he do when he rents the house? He doesn't own the house. He can't sell the house, but he can live in the house. So when he rents or leases a stream, he can have the fish or the fishing rights. And the same goes for the dovecote, and the same goes for the beehive. Kameshomarno, as we said, shunani can benefit b'chol hanoyos with any benefit sheyeshbe that exists. Bechain kol kageitzibos or anything similar. Now comes another issue, and that goes back to a mitzvah, where the Torah says that when when you will encounter a bird's nest before you, or in the field, little little birds, baiting or eggs, and the mother bird, Rebetzes, is laying on her offspring. Don't take the mother with the offspring, because it's an act of cruelty in simple interpretation. It gives the mother pain. Even though others say there is no reason for this mitzvah, but the fact is you're not going to take the mother while it's hovering, while it's laying on the birds or on the eggs. What should you do? Send the mother flying. Pound on the nest a little bit, the mother will take off. Then you can take the offspring. And the reward is long life. As an outgrowth of this, our sages said that when I want to convey to you eggs in a nest or chicks in a nest, I can't do it as long as the mother bird is there. Because this is a decree as an outgrowth of this mitzvah. So the conveyance doesn't happen. Habetzim, the eggs, you offer him and the little birds, atzmam, they themselves, sheyesh who are in the nest, the owner of the nest does not acquire them until they mature enough to fly away. And if the owner does not acquire them, he certainly can't convey them, because you can never convey that which you don't own. Because if you could convey that which you don't own, I'd be a wealthy man. I'd sell you Bill Gates' money for a bargain. And this factor, this is a rabbinic decree. Why is it? It has to do with the prohibition of don't take the mother on, on the children. Because therefore, what do you do when you own a dog coat, when you own a nest, and you want to sell the eggs or the little birds? If somebody wants to sell fledgling birds, or bakes him or eggs, that are sitting in this nest, to his friend, what can he do? How do I sell my eggs or my fledgling birds? You first need to acquire them. Remember, our sages decreed you don't own them as long as the mother is, is, is laying on them. So what do you do? So you have to wrap like not three times on the bird's nest. You got to go clop clop. So the mother birds will fly away. As long as they lift themselves off the nest, off the earth, that's considered enough for you to acquire the offspring. Once you acquire them, he can make a kinyan and act that position and convey them to the other person. Or on top of real estate, because we learned you can convey real estate. And on the real estate, you can convey anything else, wherever it is. As a secondary conveyance. Any other matters, any other ways that acquisition happens with movable objects. 
Now comes another law. Let us say a buyer buys the offspring, the produce of his dukkot. So the seller has a dukkot. I'm going to buy whatever his dukkot produces. Now what happens is if this buyer is going to take all the dogs that are born, that will be the end of the dukkot. Because the mother birds will never come back if this is a dangerous place. He can't take every fledgling bird that will be born from this moment on. Why? For all practical purposes, the mother will run away. It's not a place for a mother bird to be, where it brings birds into this world and they disappear. Nimsa, so therefore, the end result of that deed will be destruction of the entire doko. But you didn't buy the doko. You bought the produce of the doko. So what do you do? I'm glad you asked. You leave enough doves in order to keep the doko settled. You take some of the fledglings, leaving some. That way it has a future. It's like anybody who's in business knows you can't rob the business. Because if you rob the business, you know what you have left. Gunish squared. Zero times zero. You'd base become a mania. How much should you leave? How many doves? How many fledglings should you leave? So the answer is, if there were mother birds and daughter birds at the time of the sale, he leaves the first pair of offspring that the mothers will bear. In order that the mother should bond with the first set of offspring, and anything born after that, after the two pair that the daughters will bring about, and after the first pair that the mother will bring about, these he can keep because that dog court, that nest is going to continue to be populated because there's stuff going on there. Now we go to bees. When a person purchases the benefit to be gained from a beehive, you know, these days when you find bees, there are certain people that are terrified of bees. There are certain people that don't like bees. There are people who are allergic to bee bites. There's a famous saying, I don't want your honey, I don't want your bite. So you call various people who are in business. Sometimes they're called the bee doctor, the bee expert, the bee professor, and these guys come, chick shock, and they have a nominal charge. Why? Why are they so nice? You think they like you? They're so nice because they raise bees, and they're happy to take your bees. I'm just giving you some education on the side. No charge. Okay. If somebody buys the produce of a beehive, bees are a big business. It's not a business, but it's a bee business. <laughs> so the purchaser can take three swarms of three consecutive swarms of bees. But we can't be like more than three. He takes one swarm and skips one swarm. Otherwise, no more beehive. The bees are not going to bring the pollen and create... What, what do you think they create honey for? You think they create honey for Subi? You think they create honey so you should have stuff to dip the apple in? They create honey because they put it away for food. And you take their food away, they're not going to keep putting it away. They're not dumb. In order to populate, in order to settle this beehive. You Now the, bee, the bees store this honey and they grow in blocks of like wax. If somebody purchases blocks of a beehive from a seller... So if he takes all the blocks and goes home, you know what happens to this beehive? It's over. The most he can do with this beehive is say Kaddish word. He has to leave two blocks in the beehive of wax, of, of, of honeycomb. Thank you. I was thinking it was a cereal I used to eat. <laughs> Why? Because we don't want the bees to fly away and go home. The bees will find somewhere else, somewhere else to go. Okay, enough with bees. I'm beginning to itch. Okay, now we move to lumber. Anybody here in the lumber business? What if somebody buys olive trees from a person because the guy wants to build something out of olive wood? Look, it's took to cut down. Now there's a law. You can't just cut down trees. You have to know how to cut down trees. You have to leave of the trees. It's close to the earth. You have to leave two fistfuls of tree above the earth. Then you can cut. Why? Because you want the tree to grow back. If you're going to cut too close to the earth, bye-bye tree. That would be a, a terrible crime. Ask the environmentalists. It's horrible. You have to, by Jewish law, leave at least two fistfuls so it could regenerate. This is the miracle of regeneration. Look at the What if he purchased a wild fig tree that was never cut down, a virgin fig tree, never cut down? Here he has to leave three breath, hand breaths because it hasn't yet learned how to grow back. So it, it needs to be trained. You've got to grow back. You need a little more. Sadon Shoshikmo. What if he purchases a wild fig tree that was cut down previously? Two fistfuls, two handfuls, two hand breaths. Other trees. Even one hand breath, and he can cut it down. You ever notice if you were trying to cut a tree down and you're 
yard because it's in the way and it just happened to grow there. You cut it down. A few years later, it's back. Trees grow back. How do you get rid of it? Uh, you have to uproot it. Bikonium will be clonium. Reeds and vines. In order for reeds to grow back and vines to grow back, above the lowest knot because then it will regenerate. With certain types of palm and cedar trees. Now, certain palms will regenerate. Others will not. Certain cedars will regenerate. Commentaries say others will not. But the kind that don't, people will tell you that a palm tree is a weed. It's a good-looking weed. You have to just dig it out and uproot it because it will never grow again. Again, there are some kinds that will grow again. End of chapter 23. The laws of Selling. Selling and buying. Business. Chapter 24. Some interesting laws here. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction to these laws coming from where I grew up in a city. I don't know too much about all this, but if you grow up on a farm, you're going to appreciate it fine. I also spent a lot of time in Brooklyn as a kid, and as far as I know, a tree grows in Brooklyn, only one, in the whole Brooklyn. So here we learn about trees. The fact of the matter is that in order for a tree to effectively grow, it needs soil. It needs earth. If a tree does not have soil, it's not going to grow. And a tree needs sufficient soil. And that's what this chapter is about, at least in the first half. What if somebody sells? A seller sells to a buyer three fields within his, three trees rather, within his field. So when I sell you three trees, do I mean to sell you the trees? I need to sell you the soil that goes along with the trees. Otherwise the trees will die. So what he's about to say is that it is understood without specifying that the soil comes along with the trees. Otherwise the whole thing is debunked. Even if they were three small saplings, or three growths of one tree, they used to take a branch, turn it over, and plant it once to plant the other end of the branch into the ground and it would grow into another tree. The fact is it's three. Others say from three different trees. The buyer gets the soil that is appropriate for these trees. Now of course one can argue and say the buyer did not buy trees in my orchard to grow. The buyer bought trees for lumber. No. If you buy trees for lumber, it's a different kind of a sale. Here, it seems to suggest that he bought the trees in the field and he wants to continue to grow them. Without soil, you can't do anything. So that the seller has to convey sufficient soil to him as well. That's what the issue here is. Furthermore, he says, even if the trees are dried out, or they have been cut down, with the sale of trees comes soil. Furthermore, when he buys three or more trees, he also buys any smaller trees that are in between them. And as he's about to say, a little bit later, we're talking about trees that are set in a triangle. There's a diagram. Three trees planted in the shape of a tripod. What is the significance of that? The significance is that there, are, there is not enough sufficient area between these, two, between these three trees to do anything else. So therefore, it's understood that the buyer is going to get all the soil that he needs. Whereas if you have three trees in a line, then it doesn't mean that the buyer can't do anything else around the trees. So we're talking about the triangle or tripod sale. Now he defines base two. How much land do we need? Tachtehem, under them. The land beneath them, the chutzalahem, the land, I'm sorry, beneath between them, the chutzalahem, and the land outside of them, as, as much as it takes for a person to pick the fruit, to stand there in an aisle, together with his basket, and that's about two cubits. So that's understood, the land that goes along with this triangle of trees. And this space where the fruit picker and his basket can stand, neither the seller nor the buyer can plant that, because the seller can't plant it because he's going to be bothering the buyer. The buyer can't plant it because he didn't buy it for planting. He just got that as a gift to be able to pick his trees. Unless they give each other permission. When the three trees that were purchased are positioned like three feet of a range on which a pot is placed, in other words, in a triangular shape. And he defines that. Two, one opposite the other. And the third, is right between them, but distant from them. Again, the tripod or triangle. The who, in fact, if somebody will come here, I'd like to zoom if you know how to. The who, sheyiyu bein kol ilan ve'ilan, me'arba ames v'ashesh esrei. Provided that there is existence between every tree, a minimum of four cubits, a maximum of 16 cubits. Less than four cubits, there's nothing to talk about. A tree cannot survive. More than 16 cubits, it's not a grouping of trees, and this law does not apply. Here is a diagram in the Rambam of this triangle or tripod of trees. Thank you. Where do you begin measuring from? From the widest part of the trunk. 
which is not survivable. A tree needs earth in order to survive. Or more distant than 16 cubits. Or he bought them one after the other. Which means at different times, no one sale of a tree is inclusive enough to grant the purchaser of the land between the trees. Nor do we say the fact that he made several purchases is enough to grant him the land. Only when he buys three at one time in a triangular form. Or, what if he sold him two trees in his field and one on the boundary of his field? And this is a debate in the Talmud. Does that count enough in order to give him that space? Or, two trees within his field. The seller, and the buyer bought one tree in his neighbor's, or from his neighbor, in his neighbor's field. Does that count enough to give him the in-between soil? Or, there's a cistern, a pit, which separates between these. Or, a stream of water. Or, an irrigation ditch of water. Or, a public access way. The Rambam rules that all of the above do not come with this automatic portion of soil. Fico, therefore, as an outgrowth, as a byproduct of this rule, like Kanoha Ilan he also doesn't purchase the trees in between them. What if his tree becomes dried out, and it becomes cut down? He has no further rights, he should go home. Hey, however, what if somebody does buy three trees and he has real estate? He has soil. In Higdilo, if they grew properly, they see a and suddenly a new branch emerges from the tree. That happens sometimes. The tree gives out an offshoot of a new branch. There's a posik in the prophecy of Isaiah about Mashiach, the Yotza Choter, that a shoot will come forth from the offspring of Yishai, Jesse, David ben Yishai. So this is a chetar, is a shoot, a new branch. Yokuts, it should be cut off, in order that it not block the access way for the owner, otherwise the new branch is going to get into the owner's space. All twigs and small branches that come from the trees, even from the roots, belong to the owner of the trees, because he has soil above. Somebody buys two trees in the midst of someone else's field. Earlier we learned if he buys three trees, he gets soil, and everything in between them. If they are less than four cubits, separate, if there is less than four cubits between them, and no more than 16 cubits. But if he only buys, let's say, two trees, he gets no soil. Because this only applies to a triangle with meeting the above conditions of three trees. Two trees, no. Therefore, in Esau, what if the tree dies? And it's was cut off. You know what he has? Nada. Gunished. What if the two trees grew? And they gave four twigs and small branches. Yokos let them be cut off. Because again, this, the, the, the idea of three trees with soil is a mini orchard. Less than that is not a mini orchard. So he has to cut the branches and the shoots because they're going to get into the way of the owner. Unless they grow in the ground, suddenly the buyer is going to say to the seller, hey, you know what? As of today, I have three trees. Because it grew. You sold me three. We actually conquer, therefore, even though it's not explicit in the contract, I get soil. I get real estate. And this is the principle of this whole section of laws. Even though it's not specified in the contract, along with a triangular purchase of three trees, I have to get soil. Even if it doesn't say, it's understood. And that's the message here. Zion Going back to a situation where the guy only owes, owns two trees, anything that the owner of the two trees will cut down. So he only has two trees, that which comes forth. From the portion of the trunk, exposed to the sun, is part of the owner of the trees, which is property, because it's coming from the trunk facing the sun. But that which comes out of the roots is more from the earth. Not exposed to the sun, it's the owner of the field that owns them. And in the case with palm trees, the owner of the tree doesn't require any of the branches, because palm trees are different kinds of trees. Because most palm trees don't have a real trunk where it goes from. Again, I'm no expert in palm trees, but some people have said to me over, over the years, a palm tree is like a different kind of, a, of an animal. It grows top from the top rather from the bottom and the bottom line is, is that the law of palm trees is different yes we, we alluded to this earlier what if somebody sold earth he sold real estate in his orchard but he made it clear that he's leaving the trees for himself now we learned a principle earlier and this is the same principle now when a person deals with himself he's more generous i'm more generous to me than i will be to you so if i'm going to leave myself trees i'm going to leave myself enough soil for my trees you want some real estate i'll sell it to you but don't mess with my trees so we estimate that he gets half the soil in this orchard because if not, the buyer will tell him, uproot your trees, they're in my soil. Obviously, he leaves himself soil. How much soil? Enough. If he only left himself two trees. When we said earlier, two trees, when somebody sells them to a buyer, do not come with soil. When it comes to himself, and he does have sufficient soil. Because he didn't leave himself the soil, the buyer could tell him, 
like to him, like uproot your trees, and uh, as they used to say when I was a kid, get out of here. That's Yiddish for get out of here. Kes. What if somebody sells trees, and he left himself the land? The buyer of trees gets the necessary soil, as we've been explaining up until now. What if he sold the real estate, the earth, the soil to one buyer? So he and he sold the trees to another buyer. And one actually did something, an act of acquisition and acquired the trees. The and the other one acquired the soil by manifesting his ownership. As we discussed way back in chapter one, then buyer number one acquires the trees. And because the sale happened, simultaneously he gets half the soil. And the one who manifested his ownership on the soil, only gets half. It's different than if somebody buys three trees, he just gets some soil. Here, they get half the soil in this orchard. Along the same lines, there were brothers who split, they divided their father's estate. And within the estate, there was, among other things, one took an orchard. The one took a grain field, a wheat field. Yes, so it's understood that the brother who took the orchard for himself gets Arba Ames for Ames, and Ames is about a foot and a half, so about six feet. The safe they love one in protruding into the grain field, smuches, adjacent to the safe at the edge of the orchard. Why? Because he needs place to pick the fruit. He needs place to work the orchard. What do you mean? You're going into my wheat field? The answer is yes. Otherwise, I can't operate my orchard. Shalmanas Chain Hoku. This is understood in the division, in the deal. This does not need to be specified in the arrangement in the contract. If they shoot over, you do it's obvious that along with an orchard comes place to pick the fruits. Yudalif, now we come to some interesting laws all about the same subject. If something is obvious but not specified in the agreement, is it part of the agreement? The seller sells the buyer a field, and it had date palms, palm trees which grow dates. And the seller says to the buyer, you can have my orchard, you can have my field, with the exception of that there palm, not that palm. What is that palm? He says, if it's an unusually special palm tree, date palm, and that would explain why he said, that's the one I'm not selling. Then it all makes sense, and that's the one date palm that the seller holds on to for himself. Rashad in the balance of the date palm till it can't go to the buyer. But in Deca Rauschir, if he left him just a simple lousy date palm, and that's what he seems to have pointed to, then it apparently suggests that he meant all date palms, because there's nothing special about that one. Like they call him Klum, then he gets nothing of date palms. Because when he said that one, he meant like that one. What about that one? Nothing. It's not a special one. So he means accept date palms, sell you my peach trees and my kumquat, whatever you want. Don't touch the date palms. Along the same lines, you base well, Bachel saw they sold him a field. The Omalani said to him, except for the trees. If there are only date palms, she and call then he left all the date palms for himself. Because those are the trees. Then yes, what if it only has vines? You know, a vine is also a tree. When we make a blessing for a grape, what do we say? Bore who creates the fruit of a tree. A vine is a tree of sorts. So he leaves the vine. If that's all there is, he leaves all the vines for himself. The same goes for the other trees, because he says with the exception of the trees. But how you bog upon him, call him? What if there were both of these? There were vines and date palms. What he left for himself were the vines, because they seem to be more koshu, more distinct, more important. Ilonis would find if it had other trees and Grapevines, like Shia Elonis, he left the other trees. Because the other a tree is more of a tree than a vine. The Chain Elonis would call them other trees and date palms. Shia Elonis, he left the trees. Because again, a date palm is not really a tree. I've been told it's a weed of sorts. As I said earlier, a pretty good looking weed. Because when somebody sells, he sells with a generous eye. They might call him Shia if he left the date palms, like Shia Elonis, he only left the really tall, good looking ones that you need to climb up with a rope ladder. And the rest that you can just reach. They belong to the buyer. If he left the other trees, he only left the kind of tree that cannot be bent over by a yoke, which means they're strong. But anything that can be bent over by a yoke, which means they're small. is the buyers of the the naturally goes along with the field. If somebody says to his fellow, I'm selling you land and date palms. I feel like the only problem is he didn't have any date palms. But the contract calls for date palms. Instead of saying the contract is null and void, he has the option. He said date palms, minimum plural too. He can go out and buy him two date palms. He didn't say the date palms have to grow in this field. So if he wants to keep the contract valid, let him throw in a couple of date palms from the nursery. It's a good deal. The buyer cannot argue and say, she asked me to call him, I meant to buy land with date palms. You can't just go to Costco and buy me date palms. But if he said, I'm selling you soil with date palms, 
then it has to suggest it suggests that it's growing in Hoya Bashmate to call them gone as long as there was a minimum plural too. That's a good deal for Mlam, and if not, if you don't even have two date palms. Mechta so the whole thing is a big mistake. The Khazer and it's nullified. The Mamma but if he tells him Karka, shell to call him, Ani Mechalach, I'm selling you a land for date palms. Ain't like to call him, he gets no date palm. You didn't say I'm selling you a land with date palms. I'm selling you land in which you can plant date palms. Shain Baloshnazelakarkarus call him, it means that you can, if you wish, grow date palms on it. Along the same lines, what is understood and what is not understood in a contract. If somebody sells an orchard to his fellow, what is an orchard? An orchard is a place where trees grow. Sarashiyachtibli has to specify in the contract. Go acquire to call them my date palms. My, 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 my palms, Utmorim, and the dates, the Hutsin and the palm branches. Palm branches is like the lulav that we use. From palm branches, you can make beautiful wicker baskets and so on. It's a whole business. So he has to spell it out. Trees, dates, and branches. Even though, let's face it, if he sold them this orchard with date palms, the buyer requires them all, even if it's not specified. Why do we need to specify them? So here we have an interesting expression. It's a beautification of the contract. It just makes the contract more articulate. The more specific and clear we can get, the better it is. So also if he sells land, and we learned about this earlier, that it's best to write, I left myself nothing in this purchase. I gave you everything I have. This will get the person the whole deal away from any litigation and any complaints. If he says, that's it, done. Tesvav, along the same lines, he sells a house to his fellow. Now the question is, when I sell you a house, what am I really selling you? A house? What about uh, a cistern that's in the bottom of the house? What about a basement? What about a rooftop? Even though he wrote him, and I also convey to you all the depths and all the heights. He still has to specify and articulate and write. I want you to acquire from the earth of the deep underground soil to the heights of the heaven, which will cover everything in between. Because you can't acquire everything in between just with a vague agreement. But if he spelled it out, he gets the heights. If he doesn't spell it out in, in particular, as we said earlier, acquire from the ground of the earth depths to the height of the sky. He just said the heights and the depths. Then you know what he got in the heights? He got air. You know what he gets in the depths? He gets dirt. But he doesn't acquire any buildings in that earth. If there are buildings built into the ground, or if there's something built into the air, like a rooftop garden. But if he uses the language that Rambam suggests, then then he acquires anything else, such as a cistern, the hadus, a receptacle, in the depth of the earth, and any pathways that are between the ceilings and the top of the building. He gets it all. What if he sells a house to his fellow? Specifying that he's keeping the top floor for himself, the roof. Or the penthouse. He has to keep it. And if he wants to protrude the beams out of his top floor, go ahead, knock yourself out. It's yours. What if it falls? He can rebuild it. What if he has this rooftop and he wants to build on top of that? Do whatever you want. So that when he reserves the top, the top is his. Now comes an interesting law, the closing law of chapter 24. We're talking about a family plot for burial. We learned earlier that plots usually had at least eight graves, sometimes more, and they were very often in a cave, in a closed area. It was a family plot. Family plot could belong to many family members. What if one of the family members gets desperate? What else is known? And he needs money. So he sells his grave to a buyer. And he sells along with his grave, he sells the access that he has, and he sells the right of way for the coffin bearers, for the guy who's going to deliver the eulogy, and he just owns one of many graves in that family plot. So there's suddenly a stranger is coming into the family plot. You know what you call that? A shanda for the neighbors. It's embarrassing to have some stranger coming to our family plot. What's going on here? Call 911. That's background. Okay. You die, I'll make a Somebody sells his grave. A dead of Kibre, he sells a route to his grave, a muck in my mother, or the place where the people make seven stops. That's a custom that many people have, they stop seven times. You need place to stop. A base hospital, or the place where the eulogy will be delivered. There's a place where they set the podium and the microphone. Just kidding about the microphone. Boy in B'nai Mishpacha, the family members who own the rest of the plots can come along. The cave in Shambhal Karche, they can bury anyone they want there. They don't have to respect that sale. Because it's a chutzpah. You don't sell a family plot. Unheard of. Mishpacha, because this is a blemish to the honor of the family. However, the buyer was innocent. They have to reimburse the buyer for the money he laid out for sure. 
even though all of this was not stated explicitly in the deed. And that's why this belongs here in this chapter, because it's understood that even though you, as a member of a larger family, may own a grave in a family plot, you can't sell it to some stranger. End of chapter 24.